Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm the podcast host and a professor. And today we're going to talk about an important topic in world health. And we're going to discuss the topic of aflatoxin. And we'll drill down on what that is in just a moment. But I'm joined today by Shalise Brown. And Shalise Brown um, was a student in a class I was speaking to about food waste and food spoilage. And she took a particular interest in this topic. And I mentioned that I would be having a potential podcast episode on it. And she's going to join me as a guest. So um, tell me a little bit about what you do, Shalise. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast today. Um, as Dr. Folta said, I am a student at the University of Florida, and I'm about to graduate and attend vet school at the university, or pardon, NC State University. Um, my future goal as a veterinarian is to improve animal health and their the, the safety of their products, because especially in the developing world, as those populations continue to grow, they will need more animal protein and a source that is safe. So I want to be part of protecting the food supply, particularly as it pertains to animal products. And that's really great. It really uh, fits well with the topic today. And I guess as just speaking to you before, you had some kind of uh, international aspirations for your long-term thoughts. And how do you feel about that in general? Tell me more about it. Yes, sir. Well, when I graduate from vet school, I would actually um, like to join the U.S. Army and where the, they can do missions that actually um, improve agriculture in developing nations, such as, you know, kind of teaching the teacher type of efforts where they'll educate uh, folks in an area. And the idea is that if people are fed and able to become self-sufficient, they're less likely to be um, taken over by hostile entities or resort to other methods to receive income, let's say. No, that's, uh, that's, that's a reasonable thought. Well, it's perfectly positioned for today's discussion because we'll be speaking with an expert at IITA. And uh, IITA is part of the system that has done a lot of great work in crop development and, and method development throughout the developing world. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Ranjit Bandopadhyay, and he's a lead pathologist for the African continent and the efforts with um, AFLASAFE. And we'll talk about what AFLASAFE is in just a moment. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bandiopati. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. You're welcome. That's uh, really, really nice to have you aboard. So let's start out by talking about what is aflatoxin? Aflatoxin is a, is a type of mycotoxin. Uh, and it's a, it's a toxic substance that is produced by fungi. And aflatoxin is one of the most toxic naturally occurring poison known to mankind. Aflatoxins are actually secondary metabolites of certain fungi, and they are carcinogen and also mutagen. There are four common forms of aflatoxin, um, the most toxic being aflatoxin B1, but the other ones are aflatoxin B2, G1, and G2. Now, the, the fungus that actually produce uh, aflatoxin, it, 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 it's, it's a complex of species, and they are within what we call as aspergillus section flavi. These aspergillus section flavi, within them, the prominent ones that produce aflatoxin are aspergillus flavus and aspergillus parasiticus. 
Now, there are about 25% of all food are contaminated with mycotoxins. And within Africa, it is estimated that about 40% of all commodities are contaminated with aflatoxin above the permissible limit. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a pretty huge burden on African ag agriculture. Now, many crops are prone to contamination and corn and peanut are the most susceptible ones. But there are other crops like cotton seed, sorghum, tree nuts, and within tree nuts, pistachios, almonds, and figs, and there are some spices like dry chili pepper, and some oil seeds like sunflower, rice, cassava, sesame. There are many other crops that are that are prone to aflatoxin contamination. But there are some small seeded crop like finger millet and pearl millet, uh, which are grown in very harsh climates. They are less prone to aflatoxin. Certain dried products that are used for condiments in Africa. And dried fish, for example, are highly contaminated. And, and talking to Chalice, she was talking about uh, uh, in feed, in aflatoxin in feed. In fact, aflatoxin in feed is a very big problem in, uh, in, in Africa. For example, we did a survey in Nigeria and found that 62% of all commercial feed, feed sold in the market had aflatoxin above the permissible limit. So it's, it's a real problem in the, in the feed sector also. Now, aflatoxin is usually a problem of the developing world, uh, but it is also quite common and it's also a problem in the United States. Now, if you look at the world map, it's actually a problem in the countries that fall within 35 degrees north and 35 degrees south. And if you look at the map, parts of the US falls in that and the major chunk of Africa falls in it. But with climate change, the situation is worsening and this band of 35 degrees north and 35 degrees south is expanding and we are gradually seeing more and more aflatoxin events occurring in Europe, which was unheard of before. For example, in places like Serbia and northern Italy, more and more aflatoxin events are actually taking place. Now, aflatoxin is also a weak parasite and it needs weakened plant or, uh, or damaged part of the plant uh, for causing infection and, and, and subsequent colonization. And since it's a, it's a weak pathogen, it requires certain predisposing conditions, which are high temperature, for example, water stress during pre and post flowering stages, and wet conditions at or after maturity. Insect damage also play a key role, and because the insects open up wounds through which the fungus can actually enter enter the grains. Now, due to toxicity of, of, of aflatoxin, it is actually regulated and it affects both public health, it affects trade and economy, and it also impacts on food and nutritional security. Could you go more into the effects on human and animal health? And what are the ramifications of consuming animal products if the animal has consumed contaminated feed? Uh, the effects of aflatoxin on human health is is profound, and and this is one of the reasons why aflatoxin is regulated at a very small in a very small quantity. Um, if I an aflatoxin is regulated in parts per billion level, and when I talk about parts per billion, you can actually think about a silo which is 32 feet tall and 20 feet wide, and if you fill the entire silo with maize grains, one grain infected in that silo is one part per billion. Or, in other words, one second in 32 years is one billion. And so you can imagine that even very small quantity of this can cause contamination. When it causes contamination, it creates problem. Uh, so most of the exposure of the toxin is through food, but also occasionally 
uh, exposure also takes place through, uh, through, through breathing, for example. And sometimes aflatoxin B1 is known to be transferred from the skin. But these are all minor of minor significance. Now, about as I mentioned earlier, about 40% of the commodities in Africa are contaminated. And, and that is a, a real issue. Now, if you look at the health aspect and how the exposure takes place, the exposure in humans takes place even before a baby is born. Uh, when the, it starts when the baby is in the womb of the mother, and if the mother eats contaminated, contaminated food, aflatoxin passes through the bloodstream, through the umbilical cord, into the unborn baby. And when the baby is born, there was a recent uh, paper that was actually published from Uganda that showed that uh, the birth weight of baby was reduced, as well as the head circumference of the baby was reduced. So that is the first part of it. And the second part is that it, 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 it is associated with stunting. And the, the, uh, the evidence is mixed in these cases. In some of the studies actually indicate that there is a close relation, there is a close association between aflatoxin and stunting, whereas other studies say that uh, there is no association. So the 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 message, the the evidence is mixed, but most of the evidence actually talks about uh, the, uh, that uh, aflatoxin is associated with, with with stunting. And you know, I I tend to believe it because in animal models it's very well known that aflatoxin causes stunting in animals. So I don't see why such an effect would not be seen in 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 humans as as well. Now, I mentioned earlier that the initial exposure to the toxin starts when the baby is still in the in the womb. And when the baby is weaned on to solid food, and usually in Africa, it's maize or, or, or peanut-based. And at that time, the, the exposure to the, uh, to the toxin among the babies, it actually increases dramatically because these crops are contaminated. And, and due to that, uh, again, it actually impacts on the developmental aspect of, of, of the child. And as you know, that the first thousand days are really important in, in terms of development of, of, of humans and particularly babies. So you can imagine what impact it might actually have in the later stages of life of, of people. Now, there are actually two kinds of exposure that you can expect out of aflatoxin. Uh, one is a chronic exposure, and chronic exposure is uh, you, 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 the, the people and animals are exposed in, in small doses over a long period of time, and there is acute exposure where uh, suddenly a large amount of toxin is ingested by other humans or animals, and the effects of these exposures actually differ. In case of chronic exposure, it is proven, and uh, the International Agency for Research on Cancer has already defined aflatoxin as a type 1A uh, carcinogen, which means that beyond any doubt, it is proven that aflatoxin is, uh, causes uh, cancer. And it causes cancer by actually um, inserting itself into the DNA and causes a mutation in the P53 genes, gene uh, of, uh, in, in the liver. And it prevents the cell cycle progression when, uh, when, there, when there are DNA mutations. So, and because of that, we know that uh, uh, it causes liver cancer. And we also know that co-exposure of aflatoxin B1 and hepatitis B virus actually increases the potency of aflatoxin by about 30 times. And in Africa, it has been estimated that about 30% of all liver cancer cases can be attributed to aflatoxin exposure. Um, as I mentioned earlier, that aflatoxin is also associated with something in children 
and as well as on immune suppression. And as you can imagine, during the current crisis with COVID-19, eating aflatoxin-safe food would find oneself in a stronger position without compromised immunity. And so they would be in a better position in terms of dealing with COVID-19. Now, on the other hand, acute exposure, it causes death in humans and animals through various effects like liver cirrhosis, edema, vomiting. Uh, and there have been the first instances of, of death in humans act were actually reported from Rajasthan in India in 1974. And uh, the, the largest event of death occurred in, in Kenya where about, I think about 120 people died over a three-year period. And out of that, about 80 people died within, within a week in, in 2003, 2004. Um, and more recently in Tanzania, uh, about, about eight people died in, in 2016. Let me mention this, that these deaths are a tip of the icebergs. Most of the impact of negative impact of aflatoxin on health is because of, 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 uh, of chronic poisoning, uh, because ultimately it impacts on hum a human through, uh, uh, through exposure in the early stages of life. Now, I talked about the human part of it on, in animals, as Chalice was mentioning, on, in animals, it has got a huge impact. Now, one of the issues is that in humans, it takes a long time, other than for, uh, other than for of course, acute exposure. Chronic exposure takes a lot of time for the effect to be seen. In case of animals, the effects are oftentimes very quick, particularly in short-lived animals, like you take poultry, for example. Uh, the poultry producers, they're aware of what aflatoxin can do because they can see the impact right in front of their eyes. So they are very aware of the problem of aflatoxin, unlike in humans, particularly in Africa. In, not only in Africa, I think around the world, the awareness about aflatoxin and its impact is comparatively low. What about the economic effects for farmers, particularly small farmers? The, the, again, the economic effects uh, for, for smallholder farmers Initially, it can be felt as notional, but I think the effect is also quite significant. Um, and again, I'd say the effect seems to be notional because the awareness among the smallholder farmers about AfloSafe is comparatively less. But despite that, uh, the economic effects can be fourfold. First of all, farmers would actually find it difficult to sell uh, their products in the premium domestic or regional market and realize income benefits. So they would actually sell it in the local markets and they may not get the right prices uh, compared to selling it in, in a premium market. And, and, and the reason for this is that aflatoxin is a major impediment for farmers to link with the market. And this is also a major, uh, major uh, aspect that uh, uh, that many of the policymakers and the donor community think that it actually impacts on major. It's a major development agent, actually. Um, for example, the World Food Program uh, they decided to begin to procure locally instead of uh, instead of importing grains from outside. And in Kenya. Uh, where the problem was initially uh, brought to light in uh, around 2001-2002, the World Food Program went into uh, a contract with smallholder farmers that they're going to buy the maize grains from the smallholder farmers at the end of the season. So when the World Food Program went to purchase the grain, they had to decline the contract because the grains had large amount of aflatoxin. And so the farmers couldn't actually sell to WFP. And this became a huge political aspect as well. And, and it became an issue of food security as well. So that's, that's one. Um, and similar kind of a thing has happened not only in Kenya, but also in Burkina Faso, in Nigeria. And so in some countries, 
World Food Program actually stopped buying grains. Um, Nigeria is one of the cases that they stopped actually buying grains because they couldn't, uh, many of the grain lots were rejected. Um, and similarly, uh, some of the other companies who which source for good quality grain, they tend to avoid high-risk areas and go to low-risk areas. So farmers in the high-risk areas, they suffer because they can't actually get the premium. The other aspect is that uh, uh, these farmers are also unable to gain entry into the international market. And there are various kinds of loss estimates. So one of the most eye-popping uh, eye loss estimate was from the World Food, uh, from the World Bank. And that estimated that Africa was losing $670 million every year. And it's a notional loss every year because it couldn't meet the standard of exporting crops to the, to the, to the EU. Later on, of course, further studies actually downgraded that, uh, that estimate. But uh, that actually talks about the extent of, uh, of, of market loss that uh, the different nations, African nations can actually have. Um, another thing is that oftentimes the, the low quality or the rejected grains or the low quality grains which are contaminated or discolored, they are fed to animals. Uh, particularly in the, in the, in, in the, in the, in the, in the homesteads, the animals that are free ranging, for example, or even the uh, the goats and the and the cows and the pigs and the, and the chicken, uh, so they are fed with whatever the rejects are, and that impacts on the uh, on the uh, on the animals itself. And so, the smallholder farmers are unable to realize the gains from rearing those animals. And and the last point is that uh, because of aflatoxin. Um, and its impact on health, there is a greater, uh, possibly there's a greater uh, expenses that the smallholder farmers have to incur to take care of health. And, and it particularly impacts on women and children because women are the caregivers and, and the children are the, are the most susceptible ones. And lastly, it's the poor who are the most affected because Usually what has been found is in the market, the highly priced brands of flour, for example, they have got low aflatoxin, whereas the, the, the flour of lower prices, they have relatively more amount of aflatoxin. And so oftentimes uh, the poor people are getting uh, more exposed because they can't afford the highly priced and, and, and safer, safer products. So it has a multitude effect on, on smallholder farmers and, and particularly on the poor and the resource and poor farmers. Well, what about in the, in the industrialized world? Are there still problems with aflatoxin and how do they monitor there? So in the industrial in the industrialized world, as I mentioned earlier, that particular ban that I talked about within the U.S., for example, um, uh, within the U.S., it's the southern part of the U.S., uh, let's say Texas uh, and Arizona, parts of California, uh, and Georgia. So those areas are prone to aflatoxin contamination, uh, and they have to deal with it. So I'll give you certain uh, some estimates of uh, how much of the impact is so this was a study that was published in 2016 uh, by Felicia Wu from, uh, at that time she was in uh, University of Pittsburgh, and, and she estimated that the corn industry, uh, their losses range in between $52 million in a, in a normal year to about $1.68 billion if climate change can cause would cause more um, uh, more regular aflatoxin contamination, for example, what happened in the corn belt uh, in 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 2012. So uh, the impact is also there in the uh, in in the developed world. <clears throat> if I go to Europe, uh, I think in 2015 or 2016, uh, there was an aflatoxin event in Serbia. 
and the Serbian uh, corn went into various parts of Europe as, uh, and it was converted into feed. And when that feed was consumed by, by cows and there was a large amount of aflatoxin that went into the milk and much of the milk was unfit for consumption uh, as per the European Union standard. Um, again, climate change impact had, had, had effect on southern part of, uh, of, of, of Italy and the aflatoxin contamination have started to, begun, to begin in, in, in that part of the world also. But industrial, industrialized world, they've got a much better system of dealing with it. And um, so in this part of the world, they actually deal with it in, 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 three, in three buckets, if I can put it in. So one bucket is the agriculture practice bucket. So they follow good agriculture practices like the right kind of planting, good plant population, right fertilizer, weed control, pest and disease control. So they follow all good agriculture practices. Uh, they, some of the countries follow biocontrol. In the United States, it, it's known to actually follow, uh, use a large amount of biocontrol. Almost a million acres a year is treated with biocontrol in the US. Um, there are also other uh, other practices and other uh, practices and, and 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 infrastructure that comes with uh, improved agriculture. For example, uh, the harvesting is mechanized. Uh, the drying is rapid. Uh, and if you look at uh, peanut drying in Georgia, I mean, I've not seen this personally, but I've seen pictures of peanut being brought into uh, uh, mobile dryers, these are basically like greenhouses and in which hot air is, is pushed in. And so they can actually dry their crop very quickly. And the storage is good in, in good silos. The transportation is excellent. In addition to that, there is also BT maize and BT maize in some areas is known to have reduced aflatoxin contamination. So there are agriculture practices that the industrialized world follows. What most people don't realize is that, that people in the industrialized world are protected from aflatoxin by regulation. And the regulations are very strong and people are, may not be aware of aflatoxin at all uh, because uh, they have been completely divorced from aflatoxin through regulation. The government actually takes care of the problem by enforcing regulations so that the high quantity uh, so that uh, high quantity does not actually go onto the uh, on, onto the food stream, or the contaminated product doesn't go into the food stream. Another good aspect of a regulation in the developed world is that there is graded regulation. Uh, if a crop is contaminated uh, to a certain limit, it doesn't mean that it has to be destroyed. In the U.S., uh, for example, FDA they have a regulation for food, which is 20 parts per billion. And if the if the grain lots in is uh, has uh, aflatoxin more than 20 parts per billion, and if it has up to 100 parts per billion, it can go for breeding cattle. And if it has got up to 200 parts per billion, it can go for the swine for swine feeding. And if it is up to 300 parts per billion, the feed can go into the finishing cattle. Okay, uh, <clears throat> so this graded regulation has made. Is, has made a lot of difference to the U.S. Uh, uh, to the U.S. food industry, uh, to the U.S. agriculture industry. Um, in the in in European Union, the regulation is very strong. They look for they would only allow food or that has up to four parts per billion of aflatoxin um, and two parts per billion of aflatoxin B1. And so regulation actually makes a lot of impact in terms of in in terms of controlling aflatoxin in the industrialized world. So there is a lot of regulation that can help keep us safe, at least in the industrialized world. Yet the developing world still has a risk that is caused by aflatoxin. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Ranjit Badiopathe. He's with IITA in Kenya, actually speaking to us from New Delhi. Uh, and we're going to come back on the other side and talk about his solution to the way in which they're now approaching the problem of aflatoxin contamination. 
This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. In the second week of June 2020, the Talking Biotech Podcast will celebrate five years, 243 episodes, and well over a million downloads. We're proud of the diversity of guests and topics in agriculture, food, technology, and medicine. We are much more than biotechnology. And that's an important tip to all of you youngsters thinking about starting a podcast. Don't paint yourself into a corner with a wafer-thin podcast name. Because the Parking Biotech Podcast is much more than biotechnology. And while the numbers are sensational, we appreciate your support by sharing our tweets, Facebook posts, or even engaging in wanton defacing of public property with our URL. Write it on an airplane barf bag. Leave it on the bulletin board at Whole Foods next to the business card of the crystal healer or the pet psychic. Give their mental colon a much-needed science cleanse. Now, most podcasts are DOA after 12 episodes or a few weeks. And as this podcast enters its sixth year, it is in the top 17 of life science podcasts, which I hope there's more than 18. Also, check out Cameron English and Kevin Fulta on the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast, where they discuss this week's news from science. And of course, thank you for your support on Patreon. It's making a difference as we're now paying to advertise our podcast to new potential audiences. And now, back to this week's podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Ranjit Bandiopadhyay. He's with IITA and currently in New Delhi, India. And we're speaking about aflatoxin and ways to mitigate the problem. And in the first half of the podcast, we spoke extensively about what is the problem and how it really affects the developing world, as well as how it is managed in the industrialized world. Let's start talking about the problem that that you have been working on. I, and recently, when preparing for this class, I found a product called AfliSafe. And apparently, this is um, a plant treatment that limits the colonization of Aspergillus flavus. And that way is maybe just taking up the ecological niche of the, of the fungus. But could you just talk more about what this is and how it works? So AfroSafe is a, is a safe and environmental friendly uh, biological control product. Uh, AfroSafe is the trade name that we have given to the biological control product. But if you look at the genesis of this, um, it actually originates in, in the U.S. I'll come to that later. Uh, now, the way AfroSafe works is, is this. In nature, we know that aflatoxin is, is caused by aspergillus flavors. Now, not as all aspergillus flavor strains are toxin producers. So within aspergillus flavors, there are certain strains that produce a large amount of toxin that causes the aflatoxin problem. On the other hand, there are certain strains that do not contain any toxin. And we look for these strains. And when I talk strains, we look for these, what we call as genetic groups that contains members. And these, all the members of the genetic group are non-toxin producers. And through research, we look for these non-toxin producer genetic groups that are found in many different parts of a country. So they are widely distributed in the country. And so we look for these widely distributed genetic groups that are obviously widely adapted, well adapted in various parts of the country. So through research, we find out why these genetic groups are non-toxin producers and, and then uh, select 
a few of the very widely adapted non-toxin genetic groups and test them in the field to see how well they're adapted in different parts of the country. And once we do that, we then select four of these genetic groups with which we make a product. And then this, these, the spores of these genetic groups, what we call as active ingredients, the four active ingredients, the spores are produced, and then they're coated onto dead sorghum grain. And the sorghum grain acts as a carrier of the spores, as well as the food source of the spores. And so these uh, spores are coated onto the sorghum grains, and it is coated along with a with a dye and a, and a, and a, and a, and an additive so that it sticks to the grain. And this is what the product Aflasafe is, and this is what the farmers actually use to control aflatoxin. When the farmers take this grain or the formulated product and throw it on the on the ground. The good fungi that are on the on the grain, they begin to multiply on the grain. Remember, these fungi are sitting on the grain. It's sitting on its captive food source, and it is it has got the first chance to multiply it. We also ensure that we time the application in such a manner that these spores can multiply on the food source spread out in the field and occupy the the niches, the environmental niches in the field, which would be normally occupied by toxin-producing strains. So what we actually create is a founding population of non-toxin-producing strains, the good strains, that goes and occupies the, the houses, if you can call, uh, in the soil and doesn't allow the non-toxin, the toxin producers to come and occupy it. So you have an entire environment that is actually safe from aflatoxin because you have a preponderance of the non-toxin producing strains in the soil. And these non-toxin producing strains from the soil would then go and infect the, the crop and they would have, they will occupy the niches over there. Now, there are a couple of things to actually remember. Number one, uh, and this has been done through, uh, I mean, several papers are existing on that. <clears throat> Although we are applying a non-toxin producing strain in the soil, we do not actually increase the amount of aspergillus in the soil. The total population of aspergillus remains more or less the same. What changes is the strain profile, and instead of High toxin producers, you have a low toxin producers in the in the treated fields. And that's the basis of protection. So that's number one. Number two, these non-toxin producing strains, they will go and sit on the grain. And then after the grain is harvested, the non-toxin producing strains, they would actually stay with the grain and continue to offer protection in the post-harvest stages as well, okay? The third aspect is that the non-toxin producing strains, they can stay in the soil and uh, they have a residual effect for the next year's crop as well. Um, and, 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 and these spores from a treated field can also disperse to the non-treated field and provide protection into other areas uh, into other fields other than for the field in which it has been actually applied to. And so it has got many different advantages. And uh, lastly, of course, which I didn't actually talk about, it's highly effective. Uh, what we have seen is on an average 80% reduction in aflatoxin contamination in treated crops compared to untreated crops. And uh, and sometimes uh, the protection is almost like like 100% in 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 the in the in, in the protected crop. Who sponsored the development and testing of Aflasafe? We started this program in 2003 and uh, in Africa, but even before 2003, 1998, there was a conference that was held in held, held in Potunu, and that's where 
the seeds of biocontrol was sown. And uh, this was done by my predecessor, um, uh, Kitty Cardwell, who is now at, at Oklahoma State University. Uh, she brought in an expert from the U.S. by the name Peter Coty, and Peter is the actual uh, the, the inventor of the technology, and he is from USDARS. And and so at that time, uh, the the seeds were sown, but it's not until 2003 that we could actually start the program. And by that time, Kitty had left, and I started it. And so we approached the uh, the German government. Uh, and the German government was the first one to support a project for the development of AfroSafe in, in Nigeria. And Nigeria was selected because it's a large country, number one. If you can actually show impact in Nigeria, many other countries would follow. Um, and in aflatoxin was, 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 was a real problem. Now, uh, so after we actually developed the product, uh, there was a lull in funding, and so we, we just continued. And then the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation became interested. And so they began to fund. Um, so from Nigeria, uh, we expanded. And even before Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation came into the picture, uh, we had some champions within the USDA Foreign Acts Service in Washington, D.C., uh, they had also sensitized Gates Foundation and, 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 and USAID, so they also joined in. So we had funding from USDA FAS, um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and, um, and, and USAID. Uh, they were the funders for the major program, but also we had country-specific programs, and sometimes the Austrian government provided funding, sometimes the European Union provided funding. So we had a, a large uh, uh, number of, of donors who were interested in, 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 in funding this work. Uh, so one thing I didn't actually mention is that uh, the AfroSafe products that we develop are customized for each country. And so the strains that we use for uh, AfroSafe in Nigeria are not the same strains that are used for in Kenya. So all these strains are different. And, and there are about, through these donor fundings, we have been able to develop uh, 14 uh, AfroSafe products that are registered by the regulatory authorities in, in 10 different countries. And each country have uh, the funding was obtained by from from various from various donors. Uh, the other aspect of this is there is a very strong partnership element in our work, and uh, USDARS is our major partner. But in every country, we work with a range of national partners, uh, both from the private sector and and the public sector. Um, and, and through that process, uh, we have been able to uh, now have registered products for 10 countries, and the AfroSafe research, product development research is going on, and commercialization research is going on in, in, in 20 countries in Africa right now. Well, can we talk a little bit more about the practical application of this? So tell me more about how it is used. Like, does a farmer just apply this during plant growth or post-harvest or in the soil before planting? When do you use it? So the farmers actually use it. Uh, they apply the product about two to three weeks before the crop flowers. Um, oftentimes, the infection actually starts in the fields. Uh, aflatoxin contamination it starts in the field. And the infection starts at flowering. And from then onwards, it continues until the crop is consumed. So we try to approach the problem uh, before flowering. And therefore, the product is applied about two to three weeks before flowering. And by that time, uh, the, the non-toxin-producing strains, they would multiply in the field and outcompete the toxin-producing strains. So it's applied about two to three weeks before flowering. And in Africa, it is applied by hand. Uh, and the rate is about 10 kg per hectare. Uh, and uh, 
one person can treat one hectare in half a day. Uh, so this is uh, quite a simple practice. So basically what the farmers actually do is take the product in their hand and throw it on the ground two to three weeks before flowering. And it, it, it's that simple. What we try to do is to actually train the farmers on how to do it, when to do it, and what are the, pra what are the practices that they should follow. Uh, things like they should complete weeding before uh, before application and, and fertilizer application before application of Afrasave. And this is because that if they actually do the uh, agronomic practices of weeding later on, they will bury the, uh, the, the product which is on the, on, the, on, the, on the soil surface. And so, so it's applied, uh, it's a pre-harvest pre treatment that has got post-harvest benefits. Okay, that, that all makes sense. When you mentioned that this was available in, in a number of different countries, but is this really focusing on the countries where the problem is endemic? So we choose countries based on where the problem is acute. Now, if you look at the countries where we work in, and if I give you a progression of the countries where it started and how we actually went, went forward, and another thing I want to actually emphasize is that we do this work on the demand of, from, a, from a country, from the country government, uh, oftentimes. So we started the work in Nigeria, and the reason it was done in Nigeria is because it was a problem. The World Food Program was, uh, was rejecting grains from, from Nigeria, uh, and Nigeria is a big country. The second country that where we started working is, is Kenya, and in Kenya, as I told earlier, uh, it's it's a huge issue. I mean, if if, we, if you if you talk to a taxi driver from the uh, the airport, he will tell you what aflatoxin is, uh, because it actually impacts. It, it's a it's a political issue. It impacts on health. It impacts on trade, and 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 maize in, in for Kenyan is uh, they eat about 400 grams of maize every day, uh, so it is the state. So Kenya was the next one. And in fact, in Kenya, the government was so interested that they decided that they would actually register the product in their name and they would manufacture and 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 and, and distribute Afrasib. The third country that we worked in was Senegal. And in Senegal, uh, they Senegal and Gambia, actually. Senegal and Gambia were together. And Senegal and Gambia was affected to a very large extent uh, because of uh, because of uh, losses from export. I mean, Senegal and Gambia used to export a large amount of of, uh, of groundnut, and that export had had more or less dwindled. And also in the peanut basin of of Senegal, liver cancer rates are very high. So so that was another obvious choice. And similarly in Gambia, the same is the issue. I forgot to mention that in, in 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 Nigeria, one of the reasons why we started there is that uh, in the 60s, there used to be what they call as groundnut pyramids in the northern part of the country. And they had railroads going into those pyramids. And these pyramids are not, were nothing but bags of 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 maize that were, that were stored in the shape of a pyramid. Those pyramids were gone. Uh, because uh, not only because of aflatoxin, but because of certain other structural problems. But aflatoxin was e one issue because at that point of time, EU had its uh, aflatoxin regulation because of which Nigeria couldn't actually meet the export standards. <clears throat> then we worked in Malawi and, and Mozambique. In Mozambique, there's a very high liver cancer rate, and they were also facing problems in exporting groundnut. Uh, in Malawi, it was an issue about uh, uh, about exporting groundnut as well. Tanzania is a very large country, and they were facing problems in regional trade, selling maize to, for example, Kenya. Uh, Kenya was rejecting the maize coming from from from, from Tanzania. Uh, there are many many such examples. Uh, I mean, uh, currently we are in Mali, and again, Mali has a problem of large amount of contamination, and the World Food Program not able to actually export, not able to buy maize. Uh, we we have just started work in 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 Benin and Togo, 
uh, in Cameroon. Uh, most recent country where we started, and that was because the grounded industry basically asked us to come in and solve their problem. The ground, um, Sudan is a major groundnut producer, groundnut producer and exporter, and they were facing problems of aflatoxin in the in the groundnut in terms of even sending it out to countries in, 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 in Southeast Asia, forget about the European Union. And there was a company in, uh, in there's a company in Sudan, in, in Khartoum, they produce RUTF, the therapeutic food for children, and at they lost a million dollars in one consignment because they couldn't meet the standard. Uh, they had to meet four parts per billion standard. And so oftentimes, uh, uh, the demand now in terms of where we start the work is coming from the government and from the industry. The Togolese government recently asked us to, Togolese government and the Ivory Coast government, they're asking us to develop a program for their country. And uh, one thing I didn't mention is that, you know, AfroSafe is an input. It has to be manufactured by some someone. So you can have a product like AfroSafe, but because of many challenges unless it is commercialized in the right manner and it is sold by manufacturers and distributors it cannot go anywhere and so we have a very large program called the after safe technology transfer and commercialization program uh, which is which has got a couple of mbas and engineers and engineers is part of that communication specialist um, and many other people they, they have we have formed a group and through which AfroSafe is now being commercialized in, uh, in, 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 in 10 countries. And uh, so there's a whole process that is being followed in terms of licensing the product uh, to private sector manufacturers. And we help the private sector manufacturers in providing technical backstop in, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, the business plan, in terms of setting up the manufacturing plant, uh, doing proper quality control, uh, providing support in terms of communication, in terms of training, um, and, and so on and so forth. And, and that program has been highly successful. And because of that program, uh, AfroSafe has been used until last year up to about 150,000 hectares. And, and this year, we expect it to be used in another 150,000 hectares. Uh, not only that, uh, we have actually seen uh, farmers benefiting from from AfterSafe. Uh, uh, there was a program that was run in uh, in, uh, in in in, Ni in Nigeria for six years, and through that program, it was demonstrated that an external evaluator found that uh, maize farmers they actually gained $318 per hectare. Uh, uh, from uh, from uh, being part of the program uh, in using AfterSafe. In addition to that, about 13% of the food that they begin to have actually were aflatoxin safe food. And so we are seeing uh, impact. We are also seeing countries that are uh, beginning to revive their, their exports. For example, Gambia has started to export. Uh, there are Certain firms in Nigeria, they couldn't export earlier. Their, their consignments were rejected. They are beginning to export. So we are seeing this. In Kenya, the government used it in one of the food security programs. And they produced enough safe food to feed 500,000 people for a month uh, in an area which was completely aflatoxin prone. So we have seen these, uh, these improvements in, in various parts. But I must say there are challenges also, um, and uh, we are addressing those challenges as well. How is AfroSafe distributed, and does it require any refrigeration or other storage methods? AfroSafe is a very stable product, um, so it can actually stay. Uh, this this shelf life is two years, but it it can stay longer. And two years shelf life is without any refrigeration. All that is required is since since the product is made out of sorghum grain, you need to have good insect control. Uh, but it can stay in ambient temperature uh, active for two years. In fact, 
the first Afrosave that I produced in the lab that has re- that had remained active for more than 10 years. So it's a highly stable product. And so it really seems like something that can a small holder farmer obtain this product pretty easily in most places, or is it still something that, you know, getting out to the people who really need it in the remote areas, is it still going to be a challenge to get it to them? You know, as I mentioned, uh, Afrosave is an input. It has to be manufactured. So not, not in all countries we have licensed the product as yet. So as I mentioned earlier, it has been licensed in, in, in Nigeria, in Kenya, in Senegal, so Senegal, Gambia, Tanzania, um, and yeah, and their distribution rights have been actually given to countries such as uh, Burkina Faso and, 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 and Ghana. And so they are available in these countries, but they are not available right now far and wide. Uh, you know, this is a new product and it takes time for a new product uh, which doesn't increase yield. You can't see the distinction between the good and the bad. It takes time to actually to to sell such a thing. And so, uh, as I mentioned, about 135,000 hectares of crops have been treated. And we are seeing a gradual increase. And so the way the farmers can actually have access to the product is through uh, the licensees and the licensees, the manufacturing li- and distribution licensees, they have distributors in various parts of the countries um, from where the farmers can have it. But oftentimes, uh, what we have seen is that the product is bought by comparatively uh, large institutional buyers um, and, 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 and traders who work with groups of farmers and they offer it to the farmers as part of a package and then buy back the grain and sell it at a higher price in the market and, and give back some of the profits back to the farmers. The government is another major buyer and they distribute it to farmers. The government distributed to farmers. And so there are many various channels through which it is distributed, but it's it since it's a new product, it is not available uh, far and wide as yet, but soon it, it will be available. It just takes time. Well, if listeners want to learn more about the product, where can they find more information? And, and I know there's some social media links that I will include inside the episode uh, here website. But uh, is there any place that you could tell us online, like a Twitter handle or a website? So... One of the best places to look for it is uh, the website, uh, www.afrosave.com. Uh, it's a really great website, and you can find a lot of information of what the product is, uh, where it is found, what the principles of, Afrotox, uh, principles of Afrosave are. And then we have a Facebook page, and if you type Afrosave into the search box, uh, you will get it. And there's a Twitter handle also with the name Afrosave. We are on YouTube, LinkedIn, SoundCloud, and SlideShare. And again, uh, Afrosave is the is is the keyword. But the YouTube channel doesn't have the Afrosave word. But but I think you can find it once you actually use the, the word Afrosave in the search box. No, sounds really good. And I'll have a update. I'll have updates on the page. Uh, Let me say that again. And I'll have links on the page to all of the resources that you've mentioned. So, uh, Dr. Ranajit Bhattapathya, thank you very much for uh, spending the time with us today and telling us about this really exciting innovation that can help solve a tremendous problem of aflatoxin uh, in foods, particularly in the developing world. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you very much, everybody, for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you, Shalise. You still there today? Yes, sir, I am. <laughs> yeah. Oh, did you learn something new? Yes, sir. Thank you for having me on today. Well, thank you for joining me. It's really great to um, have somebody aboard who has a vested interest in this topic. And I really hope to hear more from you going forward and maybe even join me again if you find another topic you'd like to cover. So thank you very much. Sure, I'd love to. I hope to keep in contact. 
And thank you listeners for taking the time to listen to another episode of Talking Biotech Podcast. Write reviews on iTunes. Show us a little love over on the Patreons. It helps me pay a producer and helps us uh, punch up this thing in social media a bit so that we can get a few more people to listen. Uh, things are going very well, but we can always do better. Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.